Before we get to today's episode, I have a special announcement. Registration is now open for our 21-day Get Lean Challenge. This free challenge is open to everyone and is designed to help you develop habits that result in a lifelong, strong, healthy, lean body. The challenge starts on Monday, September 12th, and while I don't honestly expect anyone to dramatically transform their physique in 21 days, what you will get are daily challenges to help you develop habits that lead to a lifelong, healthy, lean body. Registration is open until midnight U.S. Eastern Time on Sunday, September 11th, so if you're listening to this before then, head over to silveredgefree.com and you'll see the link to register right at the top of the page. Oh, and I almost forgot the best part. While everyone will win by getting healthier and leaner with this challenge, one of you is going to win 500 bucks. So head over to silveredgefree.com and register today. I look forward to seeing you inside the challenge. Tell me if this sounds familiar. You tell yourself you're not going to eat that leftover ice cream in the freezer. I mean, this is the new healthy you after all. But then you have this nightmarish day at work. You know, one of those days where everything goes wrong and you're pulled in 15 different directions and nothing you do seems good enough. So you leave work late in a foul mood and the traffic is horrendous. Where do all these people come from and where did they learn to drive? So you finally get home, only to find that your husband forgot to pick up the shrimp you were planning on using for your stir-fry tonight. Seriously? I mean, the man has the attention span and memory of a gnat. Now you have to improvise, because the neighbors are coming over in 45 minutes for dinner. So you pull some frozen chicken out of the freezer and you throw it in the microwave to defrost while you curse your idiotic husband under your breath. But you're a badass, and you manage to pull off a delicious dinner put on a happy face, and you're a gracious host. You finally shoo your company out the door, you clean up, you curl up in your favorite chair, turn on the TV, and for the first time today, you take a big breath and relax. And then you remember the ice cream. You consider it for a moment and then decide, nope, you've been on a health kick lately and things are going well. You start flipping through the recently added selections on Netflix, and the image of the ice cream comes back, and this time you can almost taste its chocolatey goodness. You consider the proposition for a minute. I mean, after the day you've had, a little bit of ice cream would be a nice treat, but your willpower wins. You put the ice cream out of your mind, and you go back to browsing the new releases on Netflix. But there's some part of your brain, deep down, that's just relentless, and all of a sudden, you're sitting there with your remote in your hand, reasoning with yourself why having a little bit of ice cream is no big deal. I mean, you've had the day from hell, and you've been so good with your exercise and nutrition this week, why wouldn't a little ice cream be the perfect reward right now? And somehow, almost magically, you go from having that conversation to digging into the bottom of the container to get that very last little bit of ice cream out of the corner of the carton. And as you come out of your ice cream coma, you think to yourself, how does this keep happening to me? Hello and 
welcome to the Over 50 Health and Wellness Show. I'm your host, Kevin English. I'm the founder of The Silver Edge, and our mission at The Silver Edge is to help you get into the best shape of your life, no matter your age, so you can show up in the second half of your life as the healthiest, strongest, most vital version of yourself. We have a great show for you today. Dr. Glenn Livingston is here, and he's going to help us permanently overcome binge eating. Now, since we started the show with a promo of sorts, I won't do an ad read here. Instead, I'll just again encourage you to join us in the 21-Day Lean Body Challenge. Again, you can register for that over at silveredgefree.com. Okay, enough of that. Let's get on with today's show. My guest today is Dr. Glenn Livingston. Glenn is an author and a psychologist who has dedicated decades to researching the nature of overeating and binging. Join us today as Glenn shares his thoughts on the causes of overeating and, more importantly, what steps we can take to permanently end binge eating. I started our interview by asking Glenn about his own personal story of overcoming obesity and binging. I'm not just a doctor who works with overweight people. And I'm like, I had a very serious eating problem myself. And it's probably about 300 pounds at my worst. I stopped weighing myself somewhere around 257 because I just couldn't bear it. And I, I, it started when I was about 17. And I figured out that if I worked out for a couple hours a day, I'm 6'4", I'm modestly muscular without doing much about it. And so when I worked out, I could eat anything. I could have, you know, Boxes of muffins, two pizzas, boxes of chocolate bars, lattes, even though we didn't call them lattes back then. And, and I thought it was great. I didn't think it was a problem. I was thin. I was happy. I spent an awful lot of time eating and going to the bathroom and sleeping, but that doesn't matter when you're 17 years old. And uh, fast forward a few years, I'm 22, 23 years old and commuting two hours a day in each direction to see patients and go to graduate school. I'm helping to run a business with my, well, now it's right, but back then. And I didn't have two hours a week to work out, much, much less two hours a day. I could barely work out at all. But I found that the food still had a hold of me. And I'd be sitting with a suicidal patient and thinking, like, when can I get the next pizza? Or I, I'd be you know, talking to a couple who just discovered an affair. It was really high-risk situation where you had to be very emotionally present. And I wasn't because I'm thinking about going to a deli. And, you know, I was able to compensate in other ways, but it, it really bothered me because I come from a family of 17 psychotherapists. So it wasn't so much the weight, although I didn't like the weight. It, it was the fact that I wasn't being the best psychologist that could be. You know, to be a really good psychologist, you have to lend someone your soul it's not about just, hey, doc, here's the jigsaw puzzle of my life. Oh, well, why don't you rotate this over here and put this piece of the puzzle in here? And they say, doc, yeah, I'll get right on that. You, you got to lend them your, your soul so that they love and trust you enough to think new thoughts and try new things and actually make genuine changes in real lives. And I, I couldn't do that. I wasn't there. I mean, I was, but you know, not in the way that I wanted to be. And so I, I went the traditional route and coming from the family that I came from, I thought the problem was that I didn't love myself enough 
or I must have a hole in my heart. And if I could fill that hole in my heart with love, that I would stop trying to fill my stomach with food. And so I went to see the best psychologists, psychiatrists, and I took medication for a while. And I went to ovaries and bottomists, I spiritual endeavors. And it was a very meaningful and soulful journey. And I think that it made me a more compassionate, kind-hearted person. I think that it resolved a lot of the self-hatred that I felt around this, but it didn't help the actual behavior. I would get a little thinner and a lot fatter and a little thinner and a lot fatter. And then there were three things that happened that caused me to flip the paradigm and find an eventual solution. And it was a, this was more like turning on a rheostat than it was flipping a light switch. So I don't mean for it to sound like a miracle, but it was a very important transition. What, one was that my ex-wife traveled for business most of the week and we didn't have kids. So I worked at home, had an awful lot of time on my hands, and I started a second career as a consultant. And it just so happened that through some of the connections in my ex-wife's business, I, I was consulting for the big food industry and doing a lot of advertising research for them. And what I saw was that they were busy putting millions, if not billions of dollars into hiring these rocket scientists to engineer these hyperpalatable concentrations of starch and sugar and fat and excitotoxins and salts. And it was all designed to hit the bliss point in your reptilian brain without giving you enough nutrition to feel satisfied. The result is addiction. Every time you look into love at the bottom of a bag or a box or a container, some fat cat in a white suit with a mustache is laughing all the way to the bed, right? It's an exaggeration, but it was kind of going on. And I said, well, this is not, this is not because my mama didn't love me enough or she dropped me on my head they, and her mother dropped her on her head. They, this is, this is an external force, a very powerful external for, force that is addicting my reptilian brain. Okay. The second thing I figured out by reading a little bit of neurology and alternative addiction treatment literature, one book in particular called Rational Recovery by Chuck Trigate, was that the reptilian brain doesn't know love. It's so like what, what happens in binge eating or overeating, it's kind of like an erroneous activation of your emergency response system. But based on the days when we lived in fight or flight, feast or famine, when there could be no food available for a long time and then suddenly there was a harvest, it's like suddenly that emergency response system is active and it throws away all your best thinking because like, all of your logic and, and reason comes from the higher brain, but you know, this is a much more primitive part of your anatomy. And I realized that the reptilian brain doesn't know love. So this part of my brain that was addicted doesn't know love. It looks at something in the environment and it says, do I eat it? Do I mate with it? Or do I kill it? It's like a bad common drinking game, eat, mate, or kill, right? It's the mammalian brain that starts to say, before you eat, mate, or kill that thing, what impact will that have on the people that you love, on your tribe, on your community? And then the neocortex says, wait a minute, before you eat, mate, or kill that thing, what about your long-term goals? What about health and fitness and weight loss and personal training? And what about music and art and spirituality and your contribution to the world, right? This thing is very primitive. And this was the problem. This is the thing that when you are online at Starbucks and there's a chocolate bar at the counter, uh, it starts to say, hey, you know, chocolate grows on a plant and therefore it's a vegetable. So you worked out hard enough today, you're not going to gain any weight. You'll be okay, right? Just one bite more. Well, We'll start tomorrow all the things that you've heard a million times that cause you to throw your best link plans out the door in the middle of debt.
Right. So there was that. And then I understood a lot more about the advertising industry. So it wasn't just the big food industry engineering these concoctions. We could talk more about what they do, but the advertising industry was very good at faking us out. For example, I remember a vice president of a major food farm manufacturer was a very good friend. As he was leaving the company, hung his head in shame and told me that what they figured out through all the advertising research was that the packaging was more important than the nutrition in the bar. So they took the nutrition out of the bar, took the vitamins out of the bar, was making it more expensive, and then made this multicolored, gorgeous packaging with diverse, vibrant, multicolors, which in nature would be a signal that a multitude and diversity of micronutrients were available. We say, eat the rainbow. You have a salad with green lettuce and, and blueberries and red tomatoes and yellow carrots. You're getting a diversity of micronutrients. As a matter of fact, one of the primary reasons that we're attracted to color in the first place is because of those evolutionary buttons that are seeking micronutrients. And so what happened here was it's, it's almost parasitic, like they faked us out. And I don't mean to single out the me to single out the food bar manufacturers who are making it seem like there's nutrition there when there's really not. This goes on across the industry. They measure your galvanic skin response and capillary dilation, and they look at your response to this spokes model versus that spokes model. They know how to push the lizard brains button so that you think this is where the good stuff is. And it's this primitive part of the brain that overrides your best thinking, right? I get a little worked up about this. And so, so you got this three. No, uh, yeah, I'm a hundred percent with you. And we certainly have addressed that on this show in the past. So yeah, yeah keep coming. I, I've got a couple questions here. Okay. But, well, I, yeah, no, continue on. To. I love it. Absolutely love it. Yep. Kevin, you can drop the word. So, so the bottom line is there are these three things that had nothing to do with nurturing my inner wounded child or loving myself to him or this hole in my heart. The last thing that happened, and, and those three things made me start to feel like, well, make the solution. It's more like being the alpha dog of your own brain or the alpha wolf in your own brain, the nurturing inner child back to health. You know, and, and if an alpha wolf is challenged for leadership in the pack, what does it do? It doesn't say, oh my goodness, someone needs a hug, right? It, it, it snarls and it growls and it says, get back in line and I'll kill you or I'll kill you, right? It asserts its superiority. And I thought there are areas in which we do this already. If I had to pee really badly right now, I don't, so don't worry. But if I had to pee really badly, I would say, wait a minute, Mr. Bladder. I am doing an important interview with Kevin. I will take care of you. I'm not going to ignore you forever, but you know, there'll be a break at five o'clock and you'll be okay. We'll go and do what you, you need to do. If I see a really attractive woman on the street, I don't run up and kiss her. Right? There are ways to go about talking to people. It's like we tread these animals within that we're expected to learn to, to control and sublimate and manage in a civil society, right? And because I see myself as a member of a civil society, I've learned to control and sublimate and channel those things to my will rather than my body's will. So this isn't really that different. What, what's different is that we're being presented with these supersized stimuli that, you know, there were no chocolate bars in the Savannah. We didn't have pizza and hot tarts and Doritos and all the things that, that we'd have today. Lewis Black said, Lewis Black, he knows that civilization is coming to an end because he walked out of a Starbucks and across the street, he saw another Starbucks. 
where you could walk you could walk out of a McDonald's and across the street there's Burger King, walk out of yeah. a you know Seven Eleven across the street. Near. That, that's the world that we live. All these supersized stimuli, mm-hmm. stimuli immediately available, wearing down our decision making and willpower. Okay, so put this all together. And back in the day, I was doing a lot of study, and I was getting paid a lot of money for these you know big food companies. And I and some of them were migrated to the internet. This was like my team nineties. 7, 1998, something like that. And I said, why don't I engineer a study for myself? So I put together a study. We had 40,000 people over the course of several years when internet clicks were cheap. And I intercepted people when they were searching for solutions to stress. And I asked them what they were stressed about. I asked a couple of personality questions. And then I also asked them what foods they had trouble stopping eating once they started especially if they were stressed. And I found a couple of interesting things. People who've struggled with chocolate, and all my binges always start with chocolate. They always did start with chocolate. They tended to be lonely or brokenhearted or a little depressed. People who struggled with soft, chewy, starchy things like bread or bagels or pizza, they tended to be stressed at whole. People who struggled with crunchy, salty, chippy things like chips or pretzels, they tend to be stressed at work. I well, thought that's kind of interesting. Before I talk about it publicly, I need to figure this out for myself. So I called my mom, who was also a psychotherapist and also coincidentally had a big problem with chakra. And I said, mom, why do you think we have this? I found this really interesting thing. And I'm, I'm not really happy in the marriage and I'm unhappy about a bunch of things, but why do you think I go to chocolate when it's a little or upset? For why do you? And she, she gets this awful look on her face, Kevin, and she goes, oh, pretty, I'm so sorry. I, I'm so sorry. And I thought, oh, well, this is it. I'm going to <laughs> and, uh, and I said, mom, it's okay. You know, this was 40 years ago. I, I was telling Jane that I'm 58. I said, mom, this was 40 years ago. I forgive you. I just want to know what happened. So she said, well, I'm so sorry. But when you were one year old in 1965, your father was a captain in the army. And they were talking about setting up to Vietnam. And we were trying to get pregnant with your sister. And I was terrified that I would have wound up an army widow with two little kids. At the same time, your grandfather and my dad just got out of prison. And I had no idea where he was for two years. I had no idea he was guilty. I always idolized him. So I mostly was sitting, staring at the wall, depressed when you would have come to me for love or hugs or to play or even some healthy food. And so what I did as I kept a big bottle of Bosco chocolate syrup in the refrigerator on the floor. And I say, Clint, go get your Bosco. And you'd go crawl over the refrigerator and you'd open it up and you'd open up the bottle cap and you'd suck on the bottle and you'd go into a chocolate sugar coma and I could resume staring at the wall. And if this were a movie, at this point, mom and I would have a big hug and a big crying. I would never struggle with chocolate again. That's not exactly what happened. We, we, it was a very good conversation to have. Well, we did kind of have a hug and I learned an awful lot about my mom and we're very sweet with each other. And that, and that was one of the points where I stopped to hate myself so much. But my chocolate eating got worse as did the rest of my binges. And the reason was there was this crazy voice of justification in my hip. And it went something like this. You know what, Glenn? You're right. Our mama didn't love us enough and she left a great big chocolate-sized hole in your heart. And until you can find the love of your life and get out of this marriage, you're going to have to go right on binging on chocolate. Yippee, let's go get some right now. And 
it sounds a little crazy, but basically my brain justified said, oh, you really were wounded. This really does have an underlying cause. So we're going to keep on doing. Put this all together. And I said, okay, this was going to require some very significantly different action. And I did something a little crazy. And I'm kind of embarrassed that this is what I did. And this is what I talk about publicly now, but this is what I did. I shouldn't have used some of the terms that I used, but I'll tell you what I did. I decided to call my reptilian brain, my inner pit. I decided this was kind of like my bladder or my testicles, just like in those examples before. And it was screaming for me to break my rules and bench. Decided I was going to have to have very clear rules so I could distinguish healthy from unhealthy behavior and know when this thing was getting at there. When was my pink squealing? So I would say, for example, I will never have chocolate on a weekday again. And then if I was in Starbucks on a Wednesday, I say, you worked out hard enough, you could just start your silly diet tomorrow. I would say, wait a minute. I don't eat chocolate on a Wednesday. That's my pig squealing for pig slop. I don't eat pig slop and I don't let farm animals tell me what to do. And as crude and primitive and simple as that sounds, it would wake me up at the moment of impulse and it would give me those extra microseconds to make a better decision if I so chose. Sometimes I chose to, sometimes I didn't. But the point is that it woke me up and it reminded me that I had free will. I could think for a second about what my, what my successful reasons were for you know, eating trophy in the first place. It no longer felt like this automatic process. It no longer felt mysterious. You know, I'd spent time at Overeaters Anonymous and they were telling me I had this mysterious progressive chronic disease. And I said, this is not true. And I couldn't find evidence for that, by the way, in literature. I said, that's not true. I just have lost my free will at the moment. I've kind of lost my way. My reptilian brain is active. It's being impinged upon by the advertising industry. It's being impinged upon by big food. It's being impinged upon by the stress of everyday life. And what I need to do is wake the up and say, sorry, pig. I don't need pigs off. I don't let farm animals tell me what to do. Over time, I experimented with different rules that I could and would follow. I found out that it was really important to start low to make a low bar that I would actually do rather than try to be really, really good and lose all the weight quickly. That kept me on the feast and famine cycle that, that was it's a part of to resolve. I discovered that there were several things that I could do to switch nervous systems. That emergency activation that we're talking about, that, that biological error, that, that has to do with the activation of the sympathetic nervous system. The part that gets us all revved up to run away from a hungry bear or to Go and grab the banana when you haven't seen a banana in a long time. And what I can do is something called 7-Eleven breathing, which basically means you breathe in for shorter than you breathe out. Lori Hammond taught me that. I was at to give her credit. The reason it works is because if you were being chased by a hungry bear, if there were really an emergency, you would have time. I'm not going to do it now because it does take a lot of time, but you wouldn't have time to breathe in for a count of seven and XL for a count of 11, you'd be going <laughs> and running as fast as you could. So breathing in for a count of a seven and breathing out for a count of 11 signals your reptilian brain that this is not an emergency. It, it's okay. It's time to rest and digest and, you know, think things through. Then I would ask myself, why does the pig say that it's okay for me to break my rules and finish now? I made a very specific rule. I was very committed to it. I felt like it was sacred at the time that I made the rule and wrote it down. Why in the world, like, how is it justifying me doing this? And it would, that's when it would say things like, it'll be just as easy to start tomorrow or you worked out for today, right? And I said, okay, 
what's wrong with that line of thinking? There must be another, there's kind of like a half truth in there. And that's why it sounds appealing. Like, like I probably wouldn't get weird if I just had one bar, but it was going to be more than one bar. Like let's say that I was not really capable of having one, but my sister could have two little squares and put the rest off on her purse and say, I mean, it's the rest, right? And I, I <laughs> never developed that skill. I didn't huh? develop that skill. So, you know, I would disempower that. So for example, if, if it said it'll be just as easy to start tomorrow, I would say, well, wait a minute. The principle of neuroplasticity says what fires together, wires together. So if I have a craving for chocolate today and I eat that chocolate today, the craving is going to be stronger tomorrow. Not only will the craving be stronger, but the thought that immediately preceded it will be stronger. The thought that says just start tomorrow will be more likely to occur tomorrow. So stronger craving, more likelihood of saying start tomorrow, tomorrow just means I'm going to cycle down and down and down. The only time I can be healthy is the present. I always have to use the present moment to be healthy. Take that pig, you are wrong. And I would, it, it was like pouring sandpaper in the previously three sheet that the pig had. And there were a bunch of other little things, but over the years, I would do that. I kept a journal about all of the crazy justifications my pig had. Slowly but surely, I didn't feel like it solved my emotional problems, but it severed the link between the emotional problems and overeating. That made it possible for me to eat well and get thin and, you know, solve all kinds of physical problems. And then I felt better about myself. And when I was getting divorced in 2015, my business partner, I was a minor part of a publishing company, and he said, Glenn, we need to write a book in order to prove to other authors that we know what we're doing. And we need to make a book really famous and, you know, do, do our stuff. And I said, well, I shot this crazy journal about me versus my inner pig. See, I've been keeping it for eight years. And it was like, I don't know, four or five pages. <laughs> and uh, he said, perfect, turn it into a book. I, over that summer, I wrote a book from it and I sent it to him. He called me back two weeks later. He says, Glenn, don't answer pig slop. I don't need pig slop. I don't let farm animals tell me what to do. He proceeds to lose a hundred pounds over the course of almost over the course of the next 18 months. And as that was happening, we decided we we're going to publish the book. And you know, we did everything right. We, we both know marketing really well, but I think it was a concept that very much resonated with people. And, you know, now this is six years later, we found well over a million readers, 15,000 plus reviews. And if I'm in a big store, bookstore, people don't seem to know my name, but sometimes they'll point at me and say, take up. Big guy. Big yeah. guy. That's Mr. <laughs> that right. Wow. That's, I mean, that's quite a story here. I mean, obviously we, we mentioned in the intro here that you are a binge eating expert and <laughs> this almost seems a little counter because a lot of what we hear today is a much kinder and gentler way of dealing with emotional eating and binge eating, right? It's, Hey, we're, we're going to have to identify the root cause of this, which the, the root cause isn't that we don't know that we shouldn't eat these things. It's not a knowledge problem. And it's, you know, rooted in, like, like you said, well, I've got this hole in my heart. I'm going to fill it with food. But you've, you said something very interesting in that story. And you said that you severed that relationship between that emotional whole or that emotional pain and the overeating, right? And it was at that point that you could compartmentalize and say, okay, I'm going to call that little inner voice that's saying, hey, just binge, just do it. Let's let's have a pizza party. Why not? Why shouldn't we? I'm going to call that the pig. And I'm going to make some rules 
and they're going to be hard and fast rules. So let's start unwrapping that a little bit. I know in the book you refer to your fat thinking self mm -hmm. as the pig, right? So we all have a pig inside of us, and it's kind of that reptilian brain. You, you, you can call it a food monster, or you don't have to. You don't a have, food you don't monster, have to call it yeah, you don't have to call yeah. it a pig, especially if you've got food issues yeah. and body image issues. A pig might not be a very nice thing to call that monster inside of you, but there is a food monster, right? And you wrote that identifying and caging your fat-thinking alter ego is how you finally come <laughs> to dominate all your food decisions and permanently reprogram yourself to think like a thin person. So. Let's start unpacking this a little bit. It's people that are listening saying, okay, I have uh, – clearly I can I can relate to parts of that story. I, there are parts of me that when I reach for something I know I shouldn't eat, there's some some part of my brain is saying, oh, you, you'll be fine. You can eat better tomorrow. You deserve this. You had a horrible day today. How do we go about harnessing that a little bit? And let's start talking about how do we go about setting up these rules in order to end binge eating? Okay. First of all, it is important that the rules define a line in the sand so that you clearly know when you're following them or not. There's a lot of mythology in our culture that suggests that we shouldn't have a hard and fast rule. They say to eat well 90% of the time and indulge yourself 10% of the time. The, the problem with that is that it requires custom decision-making because they don't tell you which is the 90% and which is the 10%. And so every time you are in front of a chocolate bar, you have to make another decision. And decisions wear down your willpower. And so by the end of the day, all these decisions you made, not only about food, by the way, decision-making about other things wears down your willpower about everything else also. People have trouble resisting marshmallows if you make them do math problems before in studies. It's really interesting. So you're better off looking at you know, difficult food areas in your life and asking yourself, what role do I want this group to play? What, what would be optimal? And you know, that's why I came up with the idea that I would only have chocolate on Saturdays and Sundays because I wanted to make food decisions to have been made for me Monday through Friday. It, it alleviates the need for willpower. The second thing you want to do is choose a simple role. Start with one simple role. Unless your doctor says that it's urgent, I would not try to lose weight at first. Right? I work with people to get control at first rather than trying to lose weight. It takes um, anywhere from a week to a month for most people. And start with one simple thing that you could and would do that's not too onerous but would make a big difference. Most people know what that is for themselves. There is a trucker who tried to eat fast food three times a day. And he said, well, okay, I'm not going to stop eating fast food. I just won't go back for seconds. And that way he had a really clear line that when his inner food monster said, oh, come on, just go get a little more. You get a long haul ahead. So wait a minute, that's not me. That's my inner food monster. Why does it say I should do it? How is that? How is that rock? What's wrong with that? Another person would say, I don't want to give up anything. I don't want to regulate anything, but I would like to always put my fork down between bites. I'd like to eat more mindful. Okay. Or I'll never eat in front of a screen again. So, so choose something that you could and would do that's not going to be too burdensome. It's a low bar, so you can go to kindergarten before you go to college. And then start watching for your food monster to get you to break the rule. See what it specifically does. Teach yourself some of those relaxation techniques, 7-11 breathing, or also if, if you write down what the pig is saying as opposed to thinking it in your head, 
writing is more of an upper brain activity and binging is more of a low, lower brain activity. And you will find that by writing it down in black and white, there are different pieces and parts of Pig's erroneous logic that become exposed, whereas there's a limitation to how long a thought you can have in your head. You know, we can only carry about seven to seven information around then at the same time. Seven to ten, I think, is what the research is. But often the pig's logic is a little more complicated. And if you write it all out, you will see different pieces and parts that are kind of like the soft un- underbelly of its reasoning. And then it's also important to disempower some of the erroneous logic around emotional eating itself. Because conventionally in our culture, the mythology is that we eat food to quote unquote numb out. And they always say, so when you go to the dentist, if he's out of Novocaine, he probably says, do you mind if I inject you with some chocolate then? Because he wants you to numb out. The, the reason people think of it as numbing or comfort food is because when you overload the body with digestive tasks, the nervous system has difficulty conducting the emotions. And there is a kind of anesthetic effect on whatever you are feeling. So you don't feel things as intensely when you eat a whole lot of food. However, there's a lot more going on than meets the eye. It's not just a one-way relationship like that. There's also a reinforcement from the fact that the foods that we tend to go to at those times are not broccoli and salad and red. These are things that are concentrations of pleasurable substance that don't exist in nature. Another word for that is a drug. We're actually looking to get high with food. There's a, there is a, there is a dopamine hit that occurs. There's a stimulation of the pleasure centers that occurs that doesn't really exist in nature and takes us away from our day-to-day experience. So we're not only quote-unquote numbing out or really for comfort, we're escaping from our current experience trying to get home. Thirdly, it's not a one-way relationship. It's not like you have this emotion and then it causes overeating. That actually goes in the other direction too. So let's take anxiety, for example. A lot of people tell me that they can't sleep because they're too anxious at night unless they overeat, usually starchy things, starchy tiny things. And I'll tell them that, you know, anxiety is something with a lot of physiological correlates. Your heart rate goes up a little bit. Your galvanic skin response goes up. Your blood pressure goes up a little bit. Maybe you respire a little bit. Your, your respiration goes up a little bit. It's, it's very miserable. I mean, there is a cognitive label that causes us to call it anxiety, but there are, most of those components are measurable. And so there are animal studies where anxiety is measured in that way, looking, for example, that when baboons have higher blood pressure or, you know, cats start breathing a little more heavily. And at that point, if they give that baboon a sugar reward, don't you know they'd find that the baboons that are given a sugar reward when they have higher blood pressure learn to have consistently higher blood pressure no matter what. And so what's happening here, we think, it's a principle called operant conditioning, is that your body is learning to produce more anxiety because it thinks that that anxiety resulted in the acquisition of calories and pleasure. And so you're reinforcing the negative emotions you're trying to get away from. This is why, I mean, there is such a thing as chemical depression. There is such a thing as you know, reactive depressions and like depression is a real thing. Anxiety is a real thing. But most people we work with find that when they stop doing this, 
that the anxiety or depression is not quite as bad as they thought it was in the first place. When they kind of sit through their feelings, when they also look at the craving as sometimes an authentic biological need. So, so for example, I didn't only get off of chocolate. I eventually evolved and I knew chocolate all, at all. I don't miss it. But I didn't only, I wasn't only successfully able to do that because, you know, I already picked up our farm animals tell me what to do. But I looked further and I said, well, what do I really need at that time? Sometimes it was like a celery banana smoothie, right? Sometimes it was a big salad. Sometimes it was a, it was a, you know, a pint of blueberries. When I started gravitating towards more whole foods and said, okay, my pig says, if I don't get that chocolate, I'm going to die, right? It's like either eat the chocolate or you're going to starve. It sounds silly, but that, that's why we have jokes like just hand over the chocolate and nobody gets hurt because it feels like that at the moment. Right. It's, it's a misattribution of the survival drive. Well, what do I need to survive? And maybe it's better if I have that salad or that, you know, celery kale smoothie or, or some banana smoothie or whatever it is that I think might work for me. I found, by the way, that salads work more if I was craving salty things and that fruit and green juice would work better if I was craving chocolate. But you can calm down the emergency survival system by feeding your body what it authentically needs also. And you do all these things together. Like if you, if you cut off that grease shoot, you understand the dual relationship, you teach yourself to insert a space between stimulus response, but calming down at the moment of impulse with this silly game that we play in our head. And, you know, the, the change can be miraculous. We're never at them soon. I forget what the original question is. I think I addressed it. No, yeah, I, I think you answered it very well. Yeah, I was just kind of saying, how do we, you know, you've talked about severing that tie between that emotional need or want and the actual overeating it act, right? Physical act. And you've given us a, a, some really good information there and how that works. And I love that, that, that idea of making these hard, fast rules and, and making small ones that are manageable to start mm -hmm. with eliminates that decision fatigue. Cause I think you're right. I, I think that what happens is if we make a rule that says, Hey, I'm going to cut down on eating the ice cream in my freezer or whatever it is that's our, our trigger food, that's a good rule. Nothing wrong with that rule, except there's, what does it mean, right? right. Cut down right. By, by a percentage and how would you measure that? But if you have a hard and fast rule that says, okay, I don't eat ice cream on weekdays, mm -hmm. the decision of whether I'm going to eat ice cream, whether I'm upset or not is already mm -hmm. made, right? Now, the trick is, of course, adhering to that and learning to to basically shut that <laughs> that inner pig or that inner food monster up, right? You could also put it in to place how much ice cream you'll have on weekends. I suppose that could be another, another, yes. Yeah. You have, so there's a number of different ways you could, we could move into this and I can, you know, having read your book, of course, I see where you're going with this, but you make this big case for these absolutes and, and you, I think you anticipate people pushing back. Well, well now wait a minute. What, you know, an absolute, that sounds, that sounds absolute. That sounds, that sounds pretty radical, but you make the point that we have absolute rules in other areas for our lives, just not in diet areas for our lives. For example, I'm, if somebody makes me mad, I don't kill them. That's a rule. I just don't do that. You know, if there's, to your point, if there's an attractive lady walking down the street, I'm not going to walk up and kiss her. That's just, that's inappropriate. And I absolutely don't do that. It's a hard and fast rule. So we do have these rules. And you talk about 
commitment as well, committing to things. You're like, well, I mean, a heart, do, am I, do I really want to commit? What if I just commit 90% or even 95%? And I think the way you put it in your book is, well, okay, you're at your wedding altar and your spouse says, yeah, I'm going to commit to you, I don't know, maybe 90, 95%. Is that good yeah, enough? <laughs> Honey, I, I... You're, you're looking for 100%, right? And so bringing this kind of absolute thinking into controlling this behavior, I thought was... I thought was eye-opening for me. It's not when I opened the book, that's not what I expected to find. But as I read through kind of your step-by-step, okay, here's how we're going to roll this out, right? We're going to make rules that are hard and fast that we will always follow. There won't be any exceptions. And do you want to talk a little bit about yeah. that no exception part of your yeah. of your philosophy? Yeah. I want to say a couple of things about it. First of all, the most important thing it's what we call committing with perfection and forgiving yourself with dignity. And think mm-hmm. about an archer who, an Olympic archer who is shooting at a bullseye. When that Olympic archer was successful at shooting at the bullseye, they usually are not thinking, I'll just try the best that I can. You know, progress, not perfection. I'll just do the best I can. They, they're seeing the bullseye, seeing the arrow go into the bullseye before they let it go. The reason that's critical is that it purges their mind of doubt and insecurity so they can approach the bullseye with confidence and use all that energy in the pursuit of their goal. Now, if they miss the bullseye, they don't say, oh my God, I'm a pathetic archer. I might as well shoot the rest of the arrows up into the air. They take an assessment of by how much and in what direction did I miss the bullseye? We're still looking at the target. You know, it's not a fuzzy bullseye. They know exactly where the beginning and ending is. But by how much and in what direction did I miss the bullseye? So what adjustments should, should I make? They don't throw caution to the wind and say, forget everything. It's not worth pursuing anymore. And so this, this utilizes the energy of perfectionism in two different contexts and two different ways. It uses it productively because when you perfectly commit, then you don't have to be thinking, oh my God, what if I miss and I missed last time when I'm such a screw up and I'm never going to get it. And, and, and you can just instead be ener- putting energy onto how are my muscles aligned and how's my posture and I'm going to pull back hard further than us and am I going to hit the bullseye? And you can see the arrow going, you're much more likely to hit the bullseye like that. And then when you, when you miss, you don't say, oh my God, I'm not perfect, therefore I'm nothing, therefore it's not worthwhile. I would say, Look, if you touch a hot stove by accident, you don't say, oh my God, I'm a pathetic hot stove toucher. Let me put my whole hand down on the stove, right? You figure out how did, how did I miss that? Who am I going to avoid it with future? You make adjustments and you go on. Your food monster or your pig would like you to use perfectionism in the exact opposite manner. So people will say progress not perfection, but they don't realize they're also using perfectionism after they make a mistake. They just do it in the exact opposite manner. If you say progress, not perfection, as you're aiming at the bullseye with a pleasurable substance, what that really means is I'm going to try for a little while until I don't feel like it anymore. If you use perfectionism the wrong way after you miss, that's when you're going to say, if I'm not perfect, I have nothing, so I might as well just screw up. So we're actually flipping the way that we use perfectionism. We're just pointing out that there's, it's almost impossible not to use it and there's an energy within it. Now. This does require a kind of paradoxical thinking, because when you say, I will never have chocolate on a weekday again, 
what if you change your mind later on? What if next year you decide that's not really the best rule for you? Did you lie to yourself? Does that mean that rules don't count? Does that mean that you can't use this type of thinking? And the answer to that is no. It's, it's an understanding that we have to present the food plan and the rules to the pig as if they were set in stone, because the pig acts kind of like a two-year-old with regards to these impulses. But when my niece was two years old, I told her that she could never, ever, 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 ever cross the street without holding my hand. Never, ever, 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 ever. And technically, I lied to her because I, I knew that in five or six years, my sister was going to teach her or I would teach her how to cross the street without holding my hand and looking both ways. And But I didn't say, well, when you're a bigger girl, you can do that because the possibility of that image even popping into her mind was too dangerous. I, I did not want to present it to her because of her, her level of maturity. The pig never grows up. The reptilian brain never grows up in this way. So you have to present the food plan as if it's set in stone. But you can change it whenever you want to with forethought and consideration. What I recommend is that people keep a copy of what was working best for them, that they write down exactly what they want to change, what they want to change to. They write down why they want to change it, and then they sit with it for 24 to 48 hours before they allow the food plant to change. This prevents your pig from changing it impulsively in the, at the moment, right? If, if, if they could say, well, chocolate's not really so bad. You, maybe you really could have a little once in a while. It's been a long time. Okay, there's nothing I can't have if I decide to change my food plan tomorrow, but today I choose not to. So I'll go home and write about this. And anytime I ever worry about that, I said, no, this is a bad idea. <laughs> so, yeah. yeah. Okay. Yeah. yeah. So, so we commit with perfection, but forgive ourselves with dignity. And the idea that people say we shouldn't, there's a philosophy of thought in the eating disorders community that says that we should not use hard and fast rules because one, they can lead to too much restriction, which they could. If you're not careful using a kitchen knife, you could get cut or you could hurt someone with it, but that doesn't mean you should use it to chop vegetables. So you do need to be careful that you don't overly restrict your calories and nutrition. This is all about flooding your body with nutrition at a slight caloric deficit if you want to lose weight, right? We're trying to stay off the feast and salmon roller coaster. We use rules to be articulate about how we're going to do that. We don't use rules to try to lose four pounds a week. We just don't do that. The other reason that the eating disorders community sometimes says that rules are a bad idea is that it will create a rebelliousness that you can't resist. And that used to be appealing to me. I, I wrestled with that for a long time because it does really feel like there's this inner rebel that says, you're going to tell me I can't have chocolate, you know, go F off. I'm, I'm trying to keep clean out. I'm sorry about the soccer sometimes. I said, you know, I, I'm going to have chocolate just because you told me that I can't, right? But then I thought to myself, that's not really a mature way of being. That's, that's, also being a slave to my emotions and everything else that's working to me is recognizing that I have to sever the link between my emotions and my intellect and make food decisions with my intellect. So rebelliousness is just another emotion. It's just a pig saying, you can't tolerate feeling rebellious without acting rebellious. No, I could feel rebellious and not act rebellious. I can feel depressed and still let overeat. I can feel anxious and still let overeat. I can have any feeling and still let overeat. 
As a matter of fact, my pig really needed to know that before I could totally stop. So I think I've answered your question. So time for another. Yeah. No, you have. And I love the way you talk about harnessing the energy of perfectionism because I think you're right. A lot of, and I, I can, I'll tell you, I've got two different nutrition coaching certifications and both both of them just give barely lip service to emotional eating or binge eating and well that's a you know that's an emotional issue and if you have somebody that has you know severe emotion, emotional eating disorders you probably want to refer them and that's not you know that's not in your scope you want to refer out to a mental health professional such as yourself there but I, I do think that there there is this sense that well we you know we don't want to rely on willpower we don't want to rely on just grit and determination because eventually we're going to re we'll rebel against that right well if I say I can never have this well never that that's that's pretty that's pretty drastic. But you're the way you're describing this is we're just we're just taking the decision now. So I'm going to separate that part of my like you're saying that the reptilian my emotional decision making from my intellectual. Okay, my intellectual's going to make the rules and it's going to decide which rules we stick on stick to. The problem being here is we have. <laughs> You've called it your pig, this this inner food monster that's constantly trying to sabotage that, right? Just creeping in there. Oh, that's ridiculous. Why you could have this, you you know, hundred percent compliance. What that's ridiculous. You're really gonna go the rest of your life without doing this. So let's back up a little bit. And you've alluded to this earlier in our conversation, but for somebody listening to this who's intrigued and saying, okay, wait, I, I I'm starting to I'm starting to get the idea here where where you're going with this. How do I set up? What are some good ways to start setting up my food plan? What are some, because really our food plan isn't, oh, keto or oh, intermittent fat. You don't, it's not that kind of a food plan, is it? It's no, I'm going to decide what's best for me using my intellect and I'm just going to make hard and fast rules. What are some guidelines for making those first rules in order for us to have some success and move on? Uh, further into this? Well, first of all, I think consulting with a nutritionist is a terrific idea. So I think they should talk to someone like you and figure out what the, you know, what the order of primacy is for the biggest changes that they might want to make and try to find an order of attack that sounds reasonable to, to get started with that. Typical areas that people have trouble with are nighttime eating. So sometimes people will say, you know, I'll never eat after eight o'clock again, except for, I'll never consume calories after eight o'clock, except for some warm tea with creamer and a little bit of stevia. Or, or some people will say, I don't want to eliminate anything, but I, I think that I could crowd out the bad stuff if I start, start my days with healthy goodness. So I will always drink at least 16 ounces of a green smoothie in the morning before I do anything else, something like that. Those are some ideas that people go with, but the, the limit is your own imagination. Our program is diet agnostic. I'm like a whole foods plant-based person myself, but I don't preach that in the program. I've discovered that people are infinitely better and healthier eating any reasonable diet that gets them any reasonable level of nutrition as opposed to binging, right? And their life is so much better that my job in the world is not to get you in the optimal diet. My job in the world is to get you control over your emotional eating, get you control over your food decisions so that you can use your brain to enforce whatever you really think is the best way to eat. So I, I, that having been said, I will say that most, I think a lot of the dietary arguments and confusion in the world could be eliminated if we focus on what we agree on. And most 
dietitians, nutritionists, medical professionals agree, we should be having more whole foods, right? Like if it's got a label on it, you probably don't want to have so much, you know, and whether that's, you know, whether that's having more lean, healthy you know, animal protein or having more, you know, fruits and vegetables or probably both. But if we could just stop arguing and eat more whole foods would be infinitely better off. And so... Yeah, I'm 100% with you there. And I, I like the idea of starting this journey with with things such as, you know, maybe maybe not being so restrictive right out of the gate. You want to have some wins with this, but maybe instead of taking things out of your diet, putting things in, like you mentioned, okay, I will have a big salad with a reasonable amount of dressing. At, well, I suppose we didn't even define what that looked like, right? But these really, I, I will do that every day or every weekday, right? You know, if I don't eat any salads at all, I will, I will have one every Monday. But have these types of rules in place. And I love that you went with the, you know, we're, we're diet agnostic, but we could all agree that we would be much, much better off if we all ate more whole foods. And I'd tell anybody that's looking to go on a, a weight loss journey, that's the place to start, right? Where can we start swapping out some of these processed and ultra-processed exactly foods that you're talking about, yeah. all this hyper-palatable stuff where we've got just billions of dollars and PhD scientists just figuring out, A, how to make it, you mentioned the bliss point earlier, how to just make it absolutely delicious for us with very little or no nutritional value, and then the marketing machine behind their selling it to us. So we're, we're kind of swimming up upstream a little bit against that. But if we can start to make some of those rules where, okay, when I, when I want potato chips, I'm probably craving something salty. Maybe I swap that out for some whole food version or something. But yeah, I, I love the idea of, of these sorts of absolutes that are places where you can win and one of the things I'll tell people a lot of times is you want to change your, your body composition, you want to change your weight. What changes can you make that you'll do for the rest of your life, right? And I think that's kind of what you're talking yeah. about. We're just going to say, okay, this is non-negotiable. I'm going to make this rule and it's going to be hard and fast. And I'll, like any rule in my life, I'll go back and reevaluate that, make sure it's still serving me. But I think the trick is to not let, again, that inner food monster derail you. And what are, when people are, especially early on in this journey, because I think you've probably realized what happens as we move further and further in optimizing our health and the health and wellness journey, what happens is we kind of change and what we crave changes. But early on, that's not necessarily the case. When people are starting and say, okay, I'm not, gonna, I'm not going to eat ice cream after eight o'clock at night. And then at 10 o'clock at night, they really want some ice cream. What are some ways of dealing with that? I mean, you kind of talked about maybe keeping a journal and, and writing that down, but what are some ways for people to deal with these intense cravings that, look, my audience all over 50, they probably had, they probably carried some of these poor eating behaviors their entire adult life. What are some ways that we can overcome that, that urge to binge when it hits us? I mean, there's some silly things you could say to yourself that takes the edge off sometimes. Like, listen, they're not going to find my bones by the refrigerator in the morning. <laughs> you could grab your stomach and say, let it burn, baby, or your hips or wherever you're carrying the weight. You need to first ask yourself, have I really thoroughly nutrified myself today? And if, if you haven't, then take care of your authentic bodily needs because it's, it's very hard to refute genuine biological desires. Like if, if you, for too much of a deficit, if you're skipping meals, if you're just not getting enough sleep, I can't give you a psychological trick that's going to work really well. It, it would be like, you could not make a rule that said, I will never pee again because you're 
your body will overpower you at some point. I did write a whole book with my partner, Yoav Ezer, on, on nighttime eating. And we discovered there's a whole protocol. It's the problem actually starts in the morning. Most people who struggle with nighttime binging are not eating breakfast until 11, 12, 1 o'clock. We're very often intermittent fasters. They're not having breakfast till 11, 12, 1 o'clock. And so their brain knows there's a long period of fasting occurring. You know, it brings up a side issue, which is important to understand because people won't address this unless they do. I'm not arguing with the medical benefits of intermittent fasting. I, I think that they're definitely there. I know that it works really well for a lot of people. However, if you're caught up in a cycle of nighttime binging, if you're, if you're overeating beyond your own best judgment more than once or twice a month, the odds are that it would be better for you to teach yourself to stop those lapses of judgment first. So for you know, usually four to six months to experiment with more regularly flooding your body with nutrition so you don't get too primary. And we've not helped even one person long-term overcome nighttime overeating if they were Tuesday at breakfast. I, I have 10 coaches mm, that work with me. We've worked with over yeah. 2,000 people. Not even one case that can come up with yet. That's long-term success if they refuse to have breakfast. The other thing we found for nighttime overeating, a couple of things. We don't know exactly why this is, but people need to add something crunchy to their lunch. We call it add crunch to your lunch. Usually cruciferous vegetables of some sort, broccoli, cabbage, carrots, celery. We think that the reason for this is that there's probably a, like a, a, an oral aggression that builds up during the day that we kind of need to bite out. We don't really know what it is, but it seems like people don't feel like they've had a full day of eating if they don't have something crunchy for the lunch. That makes a really big difference. And then they need to attend to the nighttime ritual. So we call the pig pigula in this case because it whispers to you at night in the evening. And if you think about the vampire movies, they know for certain when darkness is upon them and the music changes and they, you know, they put salt around the perimeter and they put crosses on the door and they wear garlic. So you, you need a ritual that really demarcates when food is done. And that could be clapping your hand three times and saying kitchen's closed. It could be moving to another room of the house. It could be changing your clothes or taking your makeup off and brushing your teeth. So, something that indicates that nighttime is here. We have to protect ourselves from the vampires. And then the decompression ritual for the night is important also. So what are you actually doing to successfully let go of the day and all the anxieties that, that occur with that and move into your nighttime relaxation and restoration period? And often people can't completely stop nighttime overeating right at one, all at once. So they need a phase where there are a couple of low damage, low caloric things they can have like you know, tea and cinnamon sticks, or some people have diet jello. I'm not really a fan of that because it's processed, but some people do that. It works to stop life overeating sometimes. I think the artificial sweeteners are a little dangerous because they, I think the research I saw, maybe you knew better, says that they, they might stop you from eating now, but they'll cause you to have 22% more over the next 24 hours. They also, I think with the artificial sweeteners, some of the concern there is we're conditioning our body to seek those ever sweeter and sweeter sensations since artificial sweeteners are typically 10 to a thousand times sweeter than anything you would ever find oh, in wow. nature. So there's some, there's some, yeah, some interesting research in that area as well, just as we're getting acclimated to these just really, really crazy sweet tastes. Yeah. 
and yeah, and chasing the sort. Then all of a sudden, the sweetness of an apple isn't quite as sweet anymore. So, I think that goes back to the you know what you crave changes as you move. Well, because you downregulate your, your nervous system. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Thankfully, yeah. that upper lip regulates when you stop. Thankfully, yes. that comes back when you stop. Yeah. So, yeah. yeah so that yeah. that's our right, ten meeting protocol. We have a whole book of values you want to read more that puts the basics for that. Yeah, that's, that seems to be a big one, the nighttime eating. And I, and I think that, you know, when people ask me about intermittent fasting, you know, there's a lot of, that seems to be all the, the range right now. It's almost always asked in a context of, of weight loss. And it's almost always something like, well, my friend at work's brother lost 50 pounds using intermittent fasting. And, I, you know, what I think is, is that probably what's happening here is something akin to what you're describing here, right? All of a sudden, I've made a hard and fast rule that says I will not eat before 10 in the morning. I will not eat after 5 in that or whatever that is, right? That eating window. And therefore, if I was somebody who had a habit of eating in the nighttime or having alcoholic drinks or whatever, these calories and, and you know, I've all of a sudden my behavior has changed because I now have these hard and fast rules. Oh no, that's my eating window. So I I, I think that that's a maybe a version kind of of what you're talking about is is in having these rules. So Glenn, you you reference your books a couple of times, and you know the book I read was never what is it never been again. Main I think book. That, right. That's what everybody should start. That's the that's yeah. the main yeah. yeah kind of the main book there. So before we get going, well actually let me ask you this. So you you've obviously put a lot of time and effort and thought into this, and you've got a, quite a few books here for folks, and we'll mention those in a minute. But where do you go from here? What's next for you? For me personally. I, I'm going to help mm-hmm. a million people a year to stop overeating and binge it. That's that's my life purpose. I at love this it. Yeah. Okay. We're, fantastic. I mean, we're, we're, so all your energies and, and we're developing and an app and that, going right? towards third party clinical studies and going to get approved mm-hmm. by the we hope to apply to be approved by the FDA for clinical treatment and we we're, we're going to try to evolve way past the coaching organization that we have right now. Dreaming big, but I've done some big things in my life, so it's possible. Yeah. yeah, right on. Okay. And then folks that have listened to this and it's resonating with them, they want to connect with you. What are some ways they can connect with you? The best thing is to go to neverbingeagain.com and click the big red button, sign up for the reader bonus list, and you'll get a free copy of Never Binge Again in Kindle Nook or PDF format. We do have paperback and Audible available, like there's a charge for that. I'll give you a set of food plan starter templates. So see how the rules kind of work together depending upon your dietary philosophy, whether you're you know, ketogenic or, you know, plant-based or low-carb or high-carb or free counters, calorie counters, kind of shows you how people do that. And then just so you can see, this is not such a crazy thing. It's actually a compassionate in-application. I recorded a whole bunch of full-length coaching sessions that you can hear all free. Everything's free. So you can hear how we take people from feeling hopeless and desperate and confused and powerless to feeling empowered and hopeful and positive and enthusiastic in just one section. Neverbingeagain.com, click, click the big red button, please. Click the big red yep. button. And folks, I would encourage you to do that. that. This book was a eye-opening book for me. I think I mentioned a couple of times reading through that. I was a little surprised at what I was reading. But you, the way you lay this out in your book, it's entertaining. It's humorous at times. It's it's heartfelt and it's compassionate. But at the same time, it's got this very grounded, practical advice that you can try out for yourself and put into place in yeah. your life right now. So if you're somebody who is struggling with emotional eating, with binge eating— and perhaps have tried 
tried other things in the past and have had less success, I would strongly, this is a low risk way to try something new perhaps and have a fresh look at, at your, at your emotional eating and your binge eating. So I will drop all of the, I'll put all of Glenn's website that he just mentioned and links to his books as well as I think you're, you're active on Twitter and, and some yeah, social yeah. media. Yeah. I'll, I'll throw yeah. all of that into the, into the show notes as well. So, and the, Glenn, I just want to take a minute and thank you so much for coming on the show today and sharing all of your your personal journey with us, but really sharing all your wisdom and your passion for this subject and really encourage you to keep up that great work and wish you all the best in thank all you your Thank you for having me. Endeavors. This is great, Kevin. I appreciate it. Okay, folks, that's our show for this week. If you've enjoyed this podcast, I want to let you know that we have other free resources over at silveredgefree.com. There you'll find free guides with our top tips on nutrition, exercise, and healthy lifestyle. So feel free to head over there and download anything that looks useful to you in your health and wellness journey. I also want to let you know that you can find all of the links to the resources we discussed in this episode over at silveredgefitness.com slash episode 137, and you can continue the conversation over there as well. I'd love to hear your thoughts and comments on today's show. I really appreciate you spending your time with me today, and until next time, stay strong.